0: Hello, my name is Jason Maurice Porter, and I'm here with Noria, Mexico, and Central America once again with our set of conversations on gender, geography, and gender based violence, violence against women in Mexico and Latin America. Um, today it is our pleasure to have with us Lena brito uh, associate professor of history at Northwestern University she's also um, trained as a journalist and worked as a journalist for years and still does journalistic work and is also trained as an anthropologist um, she is also the re- most recently the author of marijuana boom the rise and fall of Colombia's First Drug Paradise, and it's that book um, in the context of um, the theme of our conversation that we will be talking about today. Hello, Lena. How are you doing? How are things in Chicago?
1: Hello, Jason. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation, and hello to all the uh, listeners and the audience of Noria.
0: Thank you. Thank you. It's a true pleasure to have you here. So we'll just get started, jump right in, um, into the book. Okay, so you begin your book um, placing, uh, placing the, the reader and the narrative between Juan Valdez and Pablo Escobar. Um, can you explain this dual reference um, in order to describe the marijuana boom, its time and its place?
1: Yes, um, I started the book that way because it really helps me kind of like to introduce the main idea that I wanted to put forward in this book. And that is that the marijuana economy of the 1970s, which was Colombia's very first drug economy and culture, uh, is really kind of like a turning point. Uh, between Colombia, from like the first uh, half of the 20th century, and Colombia of the last quarter uh, of the 20th century, right? So Juan Valdez, uh, to remind the re- um, the listeners who don't know who this character is. Uh, was a fictional character that was invented in the 1960s by a uh, advertisement agency here in the United States for the N- Colombian National Federation of Coffee Growers, which is the guild that kind of like uh, unites uh, all coffee exporters in the country. And the idea of Juan Valdez was to represent uh, the uh, peasant coffee cultivator of the Indian region of Colombia. And he was just um, uh, um, this, this fictional character that dressed with the typical attire of the coffee region of Colombia with a hat and a poncho and alpargatas, uh, which is kind of like these uh, rope kind of sandals. And he was always accompanied by uh, Conchita, who was uh, the mule that carried all the coffee sacks. Uh, and he was a white uh, mestizo man from the Indian interior with a big mustache um, and he represented Colombia in the international stage for decades promoting coffee and, and people from that generation like really associates and remember Colombia and Colombian coffee through like this character um, and then we have Pablo Escobar who's also a white mestizo man also from the Indian interior of Colombia Who at this point is as fictional as Juan Valdez was, and he was a real person, uh, and one of the considered one of the pioneers and one of the founders of the Medellin cartel, and therefore one of the most important cocaine exporters, not only in Colombia, but in world history. And he has been, you know, his history has been fictionalized in all kinds of movies and telenovelas and TV shows. The very famous Narcos uh, uh, by Netflix, right, Uh, is probably the most recent example And he also represented Colombia to the world. So I opened the book with these two guys, these two white mestizo men from the Indian interior as kind of like the the historical figures, one fictional, one real, but at this point very fictional as well, Um, kind of like uh, mm, embodying Colombian modern history. Uh, not only for Colombians ourselves, but to the world. And allow me to say that between these two, uh, the the two economies and culture that these two characters represent, uh, there's a turning point in the middle. And that's what my book is going to talk about, how, okay, let's pay attention to this forgotten history, this um, decade or so, when a section of the Colombian Caribbean coast uh, turned the country into the main supplier of an illegal drug to the greatest drug market in history, which is the United States. And what can we learn from that experience, from that transition, that turning point between the co- the Colombian um, coffee republic and the narcotics nation that Colombia be, uh, turned in the last quarter of the 20th century?
0: wow um yeah I, I love how you put that um looking at these two um, mestizo figures um these mythical figures one uh less mythical than the other from the Andean interior um, but your book is focused on another region that you that you mentioned uh the Caribbean uh the Caribbean coast um so can you tell us more about this Caribbean coast of of this northern Caribbean coast of Colombia the La guajira and the Sierra Nevada um and oh, and what does uh the marijuana boom and highlighting this region mean for histories of Colombia?
1: Yes, uh so you know Colombia is uh the only South American country that has coast on both the Caribbean and the Pacific, right? Because we are just right there uh in the north north uh west uh, corner of the South American continent, just next to the isthmus, right? And the Caribbean coast has always been very important to Colombia precisely because it has been kind of like the 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 uh, point of entry um, of many international and global trends to the country since... Colonial time and even since pre colonial times, right? And, uh, and it's a very wide and diverse region because not only has the coast, but also has the hinterland. So in my book, I focus on the northernmost section of that Caribbean coast because that was the epicenter of this marijuana economy that uh, reached up. Uh, a point of peak in the 1970s, but began earlier in the 60s and even lasted until the 80s. Um, and even today, the, the certain areas in the region still produce marijuana a little bit for exportation, mostly for the domestic market. Uh, but the boom, the marijuana boom, is um, it, it took place in the 70s and early 80s. So uh, the the epicenter of that economy was the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta, which is an independent mountain range that doesn't belong to the to the Andes, to the main cordillera that runs uh, all South America from the Patagonia to Venezuela. This is an independent mountain range. Next to the Caribbean coast, and it's very unique precisely because it's located next to the Caribbean coast. So it's a region of incredible diversity with all the different, you know, internal valleys and different altitudes. So it has been since the 19th century kind of like a horizon of um, possibilities in terms of agrarian development and it is precisely in this region where the marijuana uh fields um expanded right like the peasants who colonized the agricultural frontiers within the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta found in marijuana um um a livelihood right kind of like the possibility to establish a farm and to have a, a, a an economy of subsistence and participate in the international economy, in the international markets. So that was the epicenter of cultivation. And then next to the Sierra Nevada, to this independent mountain range, we have a peninsula, which if you see the map of Colombia, is kind of like that little tip of the map in the north, right, that goes into the Caribbean Sea, and that is La Guajira. So these two regions, La Guajira and the Sierra Nevada, have been considered even until now, like margins and peripheries of the Colombian nation. They're not the only margins and the only frontiers in the Colombian nation. There are many more in the Caribbean coast, the Pacific, and the Amazonian basin, right? Uh, Because Colombia, like many countries in Latin America, has been constructed as a nation uh, through that relationship and dynamic between center and peripheries. So the Guajira and the Sierra Nevada are one of those peripheries that are considering the national imagination as kind of like savage frontiers, places of constitutive violence, places that are outside of the nation, outside of the state. And that was actually the interpretation that we had of the marijuana economy and culture of the 1970s um, that I wanted to examine, question, and in the book ended up turning upside down and refuted because the idea is that precisely because these peripheries were uh, outside of the nation state, it was the absence of the state uh, of in, a, in the absence of a national culture what created the conditions for these regions to become the epicenter of the illegal drugs economy right And in my book and during my research, I realized that yes, the state is very weak in this region. I'm not denying that, but the reasons for the emergence of a marijuana economy we can now find it in the app in this supposedly absence of the state. It's the opposite. It's in the way in which, um, processes of nation-state formation unfolded in this region, what created the conditions for the emergence of this economy. And what are those processes of nation-state formation that I'm talking about? They happen on many levels, and most of them with the goal of producing agrarian development, right? So kind of like a land reform, um, Uh, reform at the level of education, public education, Um, um, also um, the way in which um, the demographic explosion took place in the region at this time, and the way in which um the state uh, through different institutions responded to that demographic growth um the promotion of different agricultural economics for exportation such as bananas and coffee and cotton which was for national consumption but also for exportation um all those different processes uh of agrarian modernization and development were the ones that established the conditions for the emergence of this marijuana economy, so instead of saying so, basically I kind of like pay attention to the epicenter of the, this economy in the Guajira Peninsula and the Sierra Nevada de Santa, Manta, Santa Marta mountain range, um, in order to understand how it was not the absence of the state, but the way in which the nation and the state has been constructed in Colombia, what created the possibilities and the circumstances and the conditions for this kind of illegal economy to thrive and consolidate.
0: That's um that's that's great. It'll it'll be really nice to hear a little bit more later about what's at what are the stakes of that argument about the absence of the state? You know, what are the consequences of that narrative, both from a journalistic perspective, also from a historical perspective? And those who are pushing the narrative, the counter narrative, um, saying that, you know, not denying that the state is weak, but, you know, acknowledging its presence. What are, what are, what, what are the hopes for that? But before we get into that, um, as we focus on this region, as you so lovely put the history of Colombia's um, and the greater context of Latin America's center versus periphery. What is your relationship with these regions, La Guajira and the um, mm-hmm. Sierra Nevada? And why did you want to tell this story in
1: particular? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it, it actually, as I said in the book, um, this research, it was uh, started as a personal quest uh, because my father and my father's family are from the Guajira from the hinterland, no, from the coast. And, but I didn't, uh, grow up in this region because my mother and my mother's family are from the Indian interior of the country, from Medellin from exactly, right? So um, I was born and raised in Medellin, uh, but I always had the Guajira as kind of like this other part of my story, my identity, um, and it was always kind of like a pending task, like get to know better this region, get to know better my family there, understand better what it means to be um, a. A person from the Guajira as well, right? Because I never felt uh, 100% Paisa, which is the the term that we use for people from Medellin and in, in that region of of the interior of the country. So um, the book started as a personal quest, kind of like to connect with with my own family, with my own roots, with the region more generally uh, beyond my own family, um, and. And it was so interesting because uh, now that I think about it, um, I was always um, intrigued by this uh, tension between center and periphery that is so crucial in Colombia, right? There's no way to understand the country uh, that we are. And the kind of war and internal conflict that we have lived for decades and continue to live, um, even though there was a peace agreement, uh, four years ago, and we were supposed ready to be mo- to move toward kind of like a new era of peace and reconciliation. But that doesn't really happen. Colombia continues to be at war. And, and that dynamic between center and periphery um, has been absolutely crucial to understand uh, the conflict and understand our modern history. And I remember that uh, I was always intrigued by that. And actually, my first um, big, ambitious journalistic work had to do with another frontier, another periphery of, of the Caribbean coast, uh, but this one on the border with Panama. So in the south part of the Caribbean coast. And that's where I did um, my honors thesis uh, for my BA in journalism. And and that was kind of like the first uh, attempt to think about center and periphery and to do local history, right, from a journalistic perspective. And from that uh, project in that region, I finally felt ready to move to the Guajira and do something more personal, right? Because I didn't have any personal connection with the other part of the, of the Caribbean region near the border with Panama where I did my honors thesis. Um, but years later, I'll get ready kind of like to use some of those methodologies and that experience as a foundation to launch a a more ambitious project that had to do with the memory of the marijuana economy of the 1970s in this, in the Guajira particularly, not the broader region, only in the Guajira where my family, um, many members of my family still live. um, And that's what I did. So I started doing that project. Uh, The first time I visited uh, my grandmother's uh, house was for uh, research on the marijuana boom and the legacy of memory and memory and how it transformed regional culture uh, was in two thousand four, and it was intended to be um, a preliminary research for my master thesis in anthropology. So that's why the cultural component was so important, and it was the initial approach I had to the topic.
0: Wow, that's uh, that's 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 phenomenal! How you've um followed that path and it really shows, it really shows when you're reading, um, especially the chapters. I mean, you move, you move from, you know, from the regions, La Guajira and um, Sierra Nevada, to international um, and transnational conversations between the United States and Mexico, but then also with other uh, drug producing countries as well. Um, but something when you're in those those chapters, you you know, the interviews that you're doing with different people, Um, I I mean, really just show on so many different levels. And to connect all of that, um, you oftentimes use masculinity as a lens of analysis in your work. Um, Could you share some more on that to the listener?
1: Yes, uh, precisely because my initial approach to the topic was through the lenses of anthropology. Uh, so, gender and culture were crucial um, uh, concepts for me to approach this history, and and there's many reasons uh, for that. On the one hand, um, is because most of the knowledge that we have about the marijuana economy of the 70s um, has been filtered through popular culture, right? Um, there was some a- academic production about this when it was happening. Uh, but because cocaine and the cocaine networks took over the country so fast and so violently, um, soon academics and intellectuals moved to the to other this other topic, trying to understand how cocaine, uh, the cocaine economy work, uh, why it was violence to provide recommendations to governments on how to deal with this tremendous challenge. So the marijuana economy of the 70s um was seen as a transient um, event, right? Kind of like a regional anecdote. And it has always been told through the lenses of popular culture because we got fascinated with the figure of the marijuana trafficker, which was these men, uh, young men, um, who um, achieve very fast upward mobility through this illegal economy. And he was always ready to exhibit Uh, his new economic and social power in flamboyant and aggressive ways. And it was known popularly with the term of marimbero because marijuana in the region and in Colombia at the moment uh, was uh, called with the euphemistic term of marimba, which is a musical instrument, but is also kind of like a translation to Spanish of um, an uh, term of African origins that people of African descent in the Col- Colombian Caribbean region used to talk about hemp, right? not to talk about the intoxicant, but to talk about the version of the cannabis plant that produces fibers, right? And it was very important in agriculture, not only in Colombia, but everywhere in the world. That's a different story, and a lot of people has written about that, uh, so I'm not going to go into there. So the term marimbero was kind of like a, a Euphemism that people use to talk about these traffickers uh, that embody like this modern male figure of upward mobility, social, um, and economic, and even sexual power, um, who were the um, you know, kind of like the new role models and the new. um, public figures uh, to admire and, and to imitate uh, for young people. So, um, that figure of the marimbero and that stereotype helped me kind of like to approach the topic. So, that's why I pay so much attention to culture and gender. But in the process of doing research, I realized that masculinity was important not only uh, at the level of representation and popular culture, but uh, Within the business itself, it was the organizing principle what allowed all these men working in these marijuana production and commercialization chains to articulate with one another and work with one another, right? So um, through kind of like this code of honor, of masculine honor, right, they engage in verbal agreements to negotiate harvest, and to, uh, coordinate, um, export operations, right? So, um, uh, the word of honor, you know, as a, as a, as a man of honor was very important. But also, um, other masculine attributes such as, um, being assertive, uh, being audacious, clever, um uh being aggressive and even violent when necessary, uh being able to move around a large geography that it was precariously connected, being able to drive cars and you know in and, and engage in conspicuous consumption. So all those male attributes uh were absolutely central in the internal functioning of this economy um and in the culture that made possible this economy and it was also uh reflected in in the musical and folkloric and folklore of the region uh at the time because uh the the, the the folkloric music uh, of this region, which is um, now a very popular genre that sells uh, everywhere in Latin America, even the Grammys have a specific category for this music, which is called Vallenato. Um, Began to reflect in the 1970s the personalities, the um, exploits, the adventures, uh, the public personas of these traffickers. Obviously, in encoded ways. So, for a listener who are not, who is not aware of the of local history, that will not be noticeable. But for people in the region, uh, that was absolutely evident. And that was the first methodology that I used to understand this, kind of like listening to vaginatos or re-listening to vallenatos because I heard those songs all my life, thanks to my dad, who is a vaginato fan and connoisseur, right? So, so masculinity really became the organizing principle uh, of the business itself, and then when the business became really violent after the state, the Colombian government, in association with the US government at the time, uh, launched a, a campaign to eradicate marijuana fields and to interdict the traffic from Colombia to the US, um, masculinity became also the organizing principle of that violent, violent response that traffickers uh, had to implement in order to survive that criminalization and militarization. So that gender perspective really helped me kind of like to understand the evolution of the business at different moments in time.
0: That's, uh, that's really phenomenal. And I want to piggyback on that and keep on going um, because you, you have so many different methodologies that you pull from um, in your book. Um, you've mentioned, you know, from your first journalistic project down in the Southern parts of the Caribbean coast to your anthropological, uh, you know, angle when you went to go and visit your, um, your grandmother. Um, I, and I, I, you know, I, I was reading the book and just kept on thinking of, you know, backward linkages and the connections that you make. So uh, can you speak a little bit more on, um, on interdisciplinary work and writing on drugs and violence in Colombia, and on drugs and violence in um, Latin America more generally. And just and real quick, also if you wanted to shed a little bit of light of listener on you know some of the um, some of the connections that you uh, make between um, you know uh, the YU culture and also the coffee culture in the region when you look at the um, the culture as well. Um, if those figure into your, your, your wide um, uh, methodological use of different disciplines. Mm-hmm.
1: So w- we, uh, we know that drug economies and drug cultures are very complex um, uh, social and historical phenomena, right? And there's no way that one particular method, one particular discipline can reveal and explain all the different facets um, that these uh, phenomena um, has, right? So I think interdisciplinarity is definitely the only way we have to um, really um, get an understanding of this. And that's what's been going on in the last decades. You see like all kinds of uh, researchers, um, scholars, journalists, uh, doing all kinds of work from like you know paying attention to the economic aspect of it paying attention to the political aspect the diplomatic aspect the cultural aspect the literary aspect so there's so many layers to um, to these drug drug economies and drug cultures um, that there's definitely uh, no way. Um, to have a clear understanding of this from just one angle on one perspective. But in the case of Colombia, f- uh, during those decades when the country was transitioning from being a coffee republic to a narcotics nation, to keep using the terminology that I use in my book, um, the people who were trying to understand the transition, they were mostly economists and political scientists, right? People that were practicing very quantitative methods and that were um, like really trying to understand um, kind of like uh, the internal dynamics, the business from like an economic uh, and quantitative point of view. Uh, fortunately, later on, since the 1990s, um, anthropologists and sociologists and historians began to uh, get really interested in those regions where the coca for the cocaine economy uh, was taking place. But very few people went back to the marijuana business of the 1970s because, as I said before, um, cocaine took over the country so fast that that was the most urgent uh, thing that we need to um, to question and answer, right? Um, so a lot of people in the region itself, where the marijuana economy thrived and declined, they were the ones who were doing all this work and. And they did amazing work and I used their, uh, essays and books, um, in my own book and, and I like, really tried to kind of like, um, put them in dialogue and, and build upon their contributions, which were very important. But they continue, um, believing and thinking under the terms of the absence of the state. Right, so I also had to question that local academic and intellectual and journalistic production because they continue reproducing that that I believed was a mythology, right? And actually, a very um, interesting anthropology in anthropologist in Colombia, Margarita Serge, is the one who has written about this, the mythology of the absence, the myth of the absence of the state, right? Um, so. The only way for me kind of like to uh, really understand how this marijuana economy emerged, consolidated and declined in this part of the Caribbean coast was mixing different methods and different approaches and kind of like compensating for one, what one cannot do with the other one. So just Kind of like to be less abstract and and be more concrete. Um, I use, for example, journalism to kind of like locate uh, people who participated in this economy or witness what happened across the region and for conducting all kinds of interviews from like unstructured to semi structured interviews to thematic interviews, live stories uh, interviews. So I really use journalism uh, for for that. Then from anthropology, uh, I use methods of uh, participant observation, which included uh, listening to songs from the marijuana, vallenato songs from the marijuana era era, in both um, social and private context. Uh, Also to conduct different kinds of ethnographic descriptions. I have like dozens of notebooks where I was taking notes, uh, drawing maps, uh, doing personal journaling and all that kind of like anthropological methodologies. And then from history, I used, um, you know, we historians are really good at identifying uh, published and unpublished sources and, and finding public archives, Private family personal archives uh, in different locations in here in the United States and in Colombia, working with printed media uh, in libraries and bookstores uh, and analyzing those sources, questioning them. So I kind of like try to navigate uh, the three disciplines in which I've been trained journalism, anthropology, and history to complement with one what the others cannot give me. And in that way, produce like a layered history of the marijuana economy and, and culture that it addresses all its different aspects, economic aspects, political, diplomatic, labor aspects, gender aspects, uh, popular culture, representation. Um, because, I don't know, I kind of like wanted to do, I, I, I like to call my book a sancocho, <laughs> which is an amazing delicious stew. Uh, that is uh, traditional in Caribbean cuisine and you find it in many different countries in different versions, both in the islands and in the continental coast of the Caribbean. And I like to think my book, because it's about the Caribbean coast of Colombia, about as a a sancocho, right? Kind of like a mixture of different ingredients that come together and seem kind of like counterintuitive but at the end kind of like make sense and and, and produce an, um, an new vision of an old problem
0: uh that definitely shows absolutely the mixture comes through so you you've laid out so elegant eloqu- eloquently the um the different tools and perspectives and methods that you pull from each one uh let's speak of you know uh, a, a, a bit on results uh so and your argument. Um, what does your argument say about telling stories about the state and drug-related conflict in Latin America? Um, what lessons? Also, you know, you know, because we focus on Mexico and Central America. Also, what lessons does your book teach us about, let's um, say, agrarian modernization, as you say, state presence, or drug conflicts in Central America or Mexico?
1: Mm-hmm. so I think as I said this sancocho <laughs> uh, tried to do many things at once uh, and and obviously it's up to the readers to decide if I succeeded or not uh, I had a lot of fun doing it so at least I know that from the point of view of producing cooking the sancocho it was a lot of fun uh, but hopefully readers will find uh, that it makes sense and that it Truly, truly shows an old problem under a new light. Uh, but um, out of those different things that I try to do, I think that the main um, takeaway of contribution of my book for people uh, doing research about drug economies and cultures in not only in Colombia, but in Latin America more generally um, takes, um, it, that contribution takes place at kind of like three levels. So on the one hand, I think I really question that paradigm of development that prevailed in Latin America in the 20th century, which was based on these grandiose goals right of modernization, industrialization, Bureaucratization, you name it, right? Um, and and I question it because while doing research about this, I realized that it was in like the um, um, the discontents. And the contradictions and the unresolved problems of, of that paradigm of development as it was implemented and applied on the ground what created the conditions for the emergence of these illegal economies. And not just drugs, but drugs at this time were the main kind of commodity, that uh, illegal commodity that allowed... Um, uh, um kind of like the production of an arena of contestation and accommodation to those contradictions and unresolved problems of of this particular paradigm of development um, because this paradigm of development, it was sold or it was thought as you know kind of like the only way to really transform these rural agrarian countries that most Latin American countries were with a few exceptions, perhaps Argentina, perhaps some regions of Brazil uh, where uh, an industrial economy really took off really early on in the 20th century. but in most Latin American um, countries we we were, like really agrarian rural countries until very late in the 20th century. So this paradigm of development proved promised um, kind of like make the jump to uh, modernize industrialized economy and society. And what it happened on the ground when we, when we start to look at, at the real results on the ground, which a lot of historians and anthropologists and sociologists have been doing for decades now, we find that this paradigm actually benefited those in power and their networks of, 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 of power and in whether they were articulated through political parties or through uh, business networks, whatever. But the majority of the people, the, uh, the anonymous, many times illiterate masses, were left out of the benefits of this. And in the case of the marijuana economy, they were cornered to the internal valleys of the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta to open and colonize the agricultural frontier and survive however they can. So it's the contradictions of that paradigm of development what actually produces these uh, conditions for uh, people finding new creative and in many times illegal ways to still be part of that uh, agrarian development and modernization. So in a way, it's kind of like, as I put it in my book, uh, and I'm actually going to find the quotation here, because I think I I say it better here in writing than what I can do now orally. Um, I said that... um, that if anything, this marijuana economy was not the product of the absence of the state, but the bastard creature of the discontents of a series of reforms in pursuit of agrarian development, a creative response to modernization on its very own terms, right? So that's one thing. The other thing I think I really examined kind of like the, the, Processes of a nation a state formation. And I write to the conclusion that the state um, is actually part of the problem, rarely part of the solution, because of the way in which we conceive the state and we engage with one another in processes of formation of a state. Um, in the case of Colombia, is very evident because the state always is constructed in these regions uh, that are considered peripheries through forced, imposition, violence, many times criminalization, militarization. So the state really becomes kind of like an intrusive um, um, agent that kind of like arrives here in the region. To, to produce a lot of disruptions instead of kind of like, you know, create an arena where the different social sectors can engage with one another under relatively equal terms and decide the way in which they are going to administer their resources and decide the way in which they are going to construct a public life right? So that will be kind of like the second one. Uh, and finally, the third one, which is related to these two, is um, discussions about violence, right? I found that violence, and, and not only in my own work, Many other uh, scholars have found very similar um, things happening in countries like Mexico, in Central America, uh, in other South American countries, such as Peru, for example, where um, we find that violence is not constitutive to drug economies, right? That violence only happens in very specific contexts where there is competition either, either among networks of production and trafficking, or where the state is arriving to militarize and criminalize those activities and use, obviously, their monopoly of violence that the state have against those communities that have been accommodating to these processes of development and modernization through illegal means. Um, So I think that will be kind of like the important thing that I bring to the table: um, understanding in what context and in what ways violence becomes a, a reasonable uh, response and, and actually a necessary um, me- method to participate in those economies and survive. That's uh,
0: that's great. That's I love how you put that. And, um, to end on, to end on, on your book, um, and thinking about, cause you've, you've laid out so many, you know, so many, I hope, I hope students are taking notes and scholars as well of, of how to approach these, these studies, um, in the context of right now, especially researching with COVID, um, how can students of uh, drugs and violence in Latin America, um, especially of, of Mexico and Central America in particular, um, use use your book um, uh, to expand their angles of analysis or types of methodologies?
1: Yeah, so I think uh, um, on the one hand, like these three main contributions that I just talked about regarding the state, regarding uh, development and regarding violence can be inspiring to um, students and scholars working on Central American Mexico, which uh, also these dynamics between center and periphery where these paradigms of development um, and these processes of state formation have also... Uh, uh, been um, crucial and central to, to the more, most recent history of these different countries. But I like to think that under the circumstances that we are working right now with this pandemic, with all the um, social protests and social movements that uh, are emerging as a reaction to not just the pandemic, but also the uh, the corruption of the political and economic and financial uh, systems in which we live. Um, And in in each country, it happens in a very particular way, obviously. But I think there's a a common thread that has to do with the exhaustion of of that model uh, of neoliberal uh, development that we have lived in since, well, the 1980s in Latin America, 80s and 90s, uh, depending on what country we're talking about. But beyond that, I think my main, at least my hope, is that this book inspires students and, and, and scholars, colleagues as well, but mostly students, young people, to not be afraid of being creative and to try different things, Mm, and to not be afraid of their own sancuchos, <laughs> because many times, you know, um, and it's tricky because as a student uh, that is, is is trying to to advance uh, your own career in these crazy moments when um financial support is is so weak and and the job market the prospects for the job market uh look very bleak and uh it's, it's really hard to kind of like focus on on what what excites you and and what sparks your curiosity um and for good reason because we have a lot of struggles and a lot of battles and fights to give but one of those fights is with ourselves as well, and with our own minds, and 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 allow ourselves to, you know, to follow your instincts and to follow your 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 uh, curiosity and being creative in your own terms. So my hope with this book is kind of like like inviting young um, researchers to, to not be afraid of that and to do their own combinations and come up with their own recipes. Uh, hopefully not recipes for disaster. but but sometimes we just have to try and, and fail. Um I uh, during this project, this very long project, I failed many times in many ways. Uh and I'm sure readers will also judge other failures that I didn't even consider failures um, in the book. But that's how it is. That's that's how that's how scholarship uh happens, and that's how we put new ideas on the table. So I guess creativity and combining different, different kinds of sources and, and, and let your instincts tell you, um, how to navigate, uh, the unknown. Um, I guess that will be, um, um, kind of like the main hope that I have, uh, uh, this book when young scholars and researchers approach it. Uh, and obviously, right now, um, there are a lot of projects to digitize uh, sources from, like, press and all kinds of uh, media sources to governmental documents that have been declassified. Uh, and we recently, actually, at Northwestern, had a really interesting conversation with Professor Lara Putnam from uh, University of Pittsburgh, who has been a pioneer um, thinker about how how we historians can be uh, more daring with digital sources and also the ethical challenge of working with digitized materials. Um, But that's something definitely that uh, that is growing and I think it has its advantages as well as its challenges. Um, but for young people, uh, that that could be like a new horizon to explore and, and to to try new things as well.
0: Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, and I hope the listeners are hearing you clearly, and are ready to jump into first your book, and then second that task of being daring. To um, make our own Sancochos. So, thank <laughs> you so much for, for sharing your recipe and sharing your time. Um, for everyone um, listening, uh, please, Marijuana Boom The Rise and Fall of Colombia's First Drug Paradise by Lena Brito is a book you will read standing up. Um, and uh, it was a pleasure uh, talking again. Um, with you all for Noria, Mexico and Central America's set of conversations on um, gender, gender, uh, gender geography, and gender based violence in Mexico and Central America. Um, you, the way you put that to the inspirational bit was, um, was lovely, Lena. Thank you so much. But would you like the last word?
1: Sure. Well, first of all, just, uh, thank you, Jason, for this invitation and all your team at Noria. Uh, I really, uh, admire what you guys doing. Uh, it's fantastic, like, to have, like, these spaces to dialogue and get to know each other better and, and, and work together. And, and just to the listeners, uh, just stay strong. Um, if history teaches something is that, uh, we are, um, like we Latin Americans, we are incredibly resilient and we have gone through hell many times. Uh, we're going to get out of this together. So thanks everybody.